This is WexCast from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. Thanks to an exciting collaboration between the WEX, Ohio State's Department of English, and the 2019 Victorian Studies Association Conference, the WEX hosted a discussion this fall with the great Mike Lee. The writer-director behind works including Secrets and Lies, Topsy Turvey, Vera Drake, and this year's Peterloo talked with Ohio State Associate Professor Sean O'Sullivan about his career and his approach to filmmaking. Their fascinating conversation is shared here. Good evening and thanks for being here. I'm Dave Philippi, the Director of Film and Video here at the Wexner Center. It's my great pleasure to welcome everyone to tonight's very, very special event, a conversation with Mike Lee. Um, this is a case, is it okay to say that tonight's guest needs no introduction? Um, I, I'll still do one, but um, <laughs> it's, it's maybe a little bit um, unnecessary. Uh, to try to sum up the extraordinary career of Mike Lee succinctly is next to impossible, but suffice it to say he is simply one of the cinema's most revered and beloved filmmakers of the last 40 years and almost synonymous with the notion of art house cinema. Mr. Lee is a prolific writer and director of television, stage, and screen. Awards are certainly not the measure of an artist, but he has received some of the most prestigious in our field. His modern classic, Naked, won the Best Director Award at the Cannes Film Festival in 1993. He was awarded the Palme d'Or in 1996 for Secret and Lies, arguably filmdom's most desired award. Vera Drake was named the best film at the Venice Film Festival in 2004. And he has received seven Academy Award nominations, um, Best Original Screenplay and Best Directing for Secrets and Lies and Vera Drake, and Best Original Screenplay for Topsy Turvey, Happy Go Lucky, and Another Year. And those films also um, received multiple nominations for um, other people associated with the film. I really like this quote by Ian Baruma about Mr. Lee. It is hard to get on a London bus or listen to people at the next table in a cafeteria without thinking of Mike Lee. Like other wholly original artists, he has staked out his own territory. Lee's London is as distinctive as Fellini's Rome or Ozu's Tokyo. I think that really sums it up. Mr. Lee is with us this evening because he will be the keynote speaker at this weekend's North American Victorian Studies Association Conference in Columbus, where he will discuss his films Topsy Turvey, Mr. Turner, and his most recent film, Peterloo. I thank our colleagues in Ohio State's Department of English, Sean O'Sullivan and Jill Galvin, who invited us to share Mr. Lee while he was in Columbus, and all of the credit for him being here this evening goes to them. Before Mr. Lee takes the stage, I would like to introduce Sean. Sean O'Sullivan is the Associate Professor in the OSU's Department of English. He will join him on stage to conduct this evening's interview. Sean is the author of the monograph, Mike Lee, from 2011, uh, published by the University of Illinois Press, and it's available in the Wexner Center store. It's such a great honor to have Mike Lee um, with us this evening. So it was interesting looking through his filmography this week, and just you can kind of remember what was going on in your life when all of those films came out. Um, it's, I don't know if everyone has that same sensation, but I did. Um, Anyway, with no further ado, please join me in welcoming Sean O'Sullivan and Mike Lee.
remember what was going on in my life <laughs> every time I made one of those films. <laughs> so that's all I have to say, really. <laughs> I'll go. Um, I did, I was uh, suddenly tempted to make a reference to, uh, I've got a little list here, um, Gilbert and Sullivan. But anyway, so we're going to begin on, on a sour note, um, uh, in that, um, as you often say, and said again today, uh, the thing that you care about the most is the finished product on the screen, and actually one of the things I um, argue about in my book is that, you know, often not enough attention is given to the final product, but I do want to ask you the question you always hate answering, uh, or at least talk about the thing you hate talking about, which is your process. And the reason I'm doing this is just so people in the room who are interested in it, or at least are aware of it, we can talk about it, and there's a sort of follow-up question, which in some ways I'm uh, most interested in pursuing, but... And I'm very nervous about this because describing your process in front of you is a little, you know, I'm going to get something wrong. But um, um, as you may know, um, one of the things that makes uh, not so much the finished films, which are um, uh, great works in their own right, but distinctive about Mike's um, uh, creative process is that he will gather together um, actors um, um, for a very long preparation period, preparatory period, rehearsal period, um, with no script, no characters as yet, um, and over many, many weeks uh, of, of rehearsal and, and improvisation, uh, usually independently at first, and then later coming together. You're looking at me as if it's... Um, no, I'm looking uh, at you because I'm uh, so impressed. Impressed. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of freelancing this a little bit. Um, um, so that, uh, and gradually they come together and then um, they get to know each other. And one of the, I think this is in one of the, I hope I got this right, when the... There's a DVD extra of Mr. Turner, his film about, about um, J.M.W. Turner, and um, Paul Jessen, who plays his father, I think he says there that when they first started working together, uh, Timothy Spall sort of played himself as a sort of a baby, right? And they actually sort of worked through their entire life history together, right? Uh, not just the years that you see on the film. So uh, I just want to give you all that as, as a context for people, if they're aware of it or not, but the reason I wanted to at least launch with that beginning is that you know, presumably part of the, you're just used, this is the way you work, this is what you're familiar with, this is what you love doing, um, but obviously there's this potential terror, at least there would be for me, of um, what happens if halfway through, right, this is going nowhere, right? And I'm curious, does that ever occur, does that ever happen to you, or do you, you know, not you don't have to name particular films, but the sense of, um, I've got no name for the film, no screenplay, you know, or, or do you just reckon that as part of the process, that at a certain points you will feel um, adrift? Well, I mean, I think anybody um, here who does any kind of creative work of any kind, um, it will not be, you will not find it extraordinary for me to say that it is uh, inherent in all creative processes, that it is dangerous and you inevitably go through phases of not knowing what the hell you're doing and wondering, you know, why you exist. <laughs> whether there'd ever be light at the end of the tunnel and all of that. Mm -hmm. That is in the nature of the, of the creative process. And, you know, um, the, the, the truth is that it, it may be the case, and it is the case, that on my particular, with my particular way of going about things, um, which I, I'll talk about a bit, um, th that, you know, yes, the, the received notion is there is nothing and then somehow we do this stuff and a film happens. And even with a film or a play that um, is um, 
worked on in a more conventional way. Somewhere along the line, nothing was there. <laughs> and then somebody wrote a script, etc. I mean, you know, and, and then even if they write, if somebody writes a script, that doesn't mean the film exists. That means a script exists. And something has to happen to cause something to happen in front of the camera so that raw material can be engendered, so that something happens can happen in that other, other dangerous place where films are actually made, which is later in the cutting room or the editing suite, if you want to call it that. Um, so all art is about the synthesis of improvisation and order. Um, uh, and all that I've um, uh, evolved as a way of going about things is simply to say, well, you know, let's combine the thing of exploring and researching and, uh, 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 and investigating and writing and performance and, you know, writing and directing. And, um, and, and f finally, you know, let's make, let's um, aspire in feature filmmaking and dramatic filmmaking to what you might call the, aspire to the condition of documentary which is actually, you're out there to discover what the film is by the process of making it. Um, and so that, yeah, we do spend um, a long stretch of time before we make any of these films um, bringing into existence the premise of the film, bringing into existence the world of the film, um, but only in a very, only in a fluid way, because until we actually define the action, which I can only do in the location. For all the work that's gone on previously, we've only really established who they are and what the basic possibilities are. But then, scene by scene, sequence by sequence, in the location, and I can only, in inverted commas, write a sequence or action by, be, by seeing it, by being, you know, it's, it's not only about characters, it's about place, it's about the dynamics of uh, the physicality and of where you are and so on. Um, through rehearsal in the location, i.e. by improvising and then stopping and pinning it down and gradually writing through rehearsal. I never go away and write things down on paper and bring it back and give it to the actors. It happens during the rehearsal. We then arrive at a, at a, a material which then we are rejoined by a film crew. And then we, it's then subject to really rendering it into film terms and making the action serve the camera and the camera serve the action, you know. So it, it, it's, um, it, it's about a dangerous, frightening, exciting, stimulating, uh, rich, and terrifying <laughs> uh, thing. So it's all of those yeah. things. So you're right. Well, I mean, partly the reason I asked the question um, is, you know, it, to me, um, the way that, ends up shaping a relationship to plot, right? It seems really interesting. We, t we were talking earlier today about Secrets and Lies and about two, two scenes from that film that the money people wanted to cut out because they thought they were kind of extraneous and I was aghast when I heard this because they're two of my most favorite film scenes, but there are scenes you can see, right? You might not have written, right, if you're writing the screenplay because they might seem to be, you know, lateral as opposed to central. I, I mean, yeah. I, 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 I'm not sure about okay. that, to be honest, because, you know, in the end, uh, my, I mean, I think you may be right, and you, you're partly right and partly not right. I think is what I'm saying. That's always the way. But yeah. because, 
it, um, in the end, it's about storytelling. In the end, it's about coherent, uh, doing a coherent narrative. But because I, I, it, 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 it's not only about character, but it's but the the quality and the texture of people and the way we are and in our our idiosyncrasies and all of that is in is um, uh, uh, fundamental to the the form and the content are are, are as one. Um, I mean, you could say that. Well, I might put into my film any of my films, stuff that came out in an improvisation or stuff that, you know, to do with character that's just interesting in its own right that may or may not have a, a, any real dramatic function, but I don't. I mean, it's, the, it, you know, the films have to work dramatically. And, you know, but, you know, you don't have to look far in Shakespeare to discover all kinds of scenes with characters. You know, the whole thing is inverse, and suddenly you get a scene in... Um, not in prose, um, that is about character and, you know, informs the plot but is uh, either a subplot or simply a character, uh, an enriching detail of some sort. And so those things are there to, to, to deploy and utilise and to enjoy and to savour. But, um, but there's still got to be a discipline about the storytelling. It's got to actually, I mean, those scenes that you were talking about in Secrets and Lies, I mean, only the boneheads who backed the film <laughs> uh, wanted to cut, cut them. The fact of the matter is, according to the strictest, most boring, um, you know, uh, Hollywood uh, rules of storytelling, would they be seen to be extraneous? The fact is that each of them had the primary function of telling you something telling you a number of things, quite a lot of things, about those characters to help you to understand them in such a way as would inform the rest of the... Uh... Well, it makes it, it's shines a light on how conservative, narratively, right, often people think of as film, right? If, it, if you know, it's the traditional classical Hollywood model, you don't only have a scene if it clearly advances something that... Yes, uh, and I know. mean, on the whole, I think scenes in films should advance something, but, but not necessarily obviously, you know. So uh, I want to cover lots of things, but since you uh, mentioned location a minute ago, and, and uh, Dave mentioned that, I, I, a quote I recognize from Ian Baruma about uh, your London. Um, obviously, it's, it's a huge question to think about, but I know that, I think maybe with the exception of maybe Turner's house in um, Mr. Turner, your policy anyway has been when you shoot interiors and exteriors right, of a house, you never cheat by having the interior being of a different location from where the character is actually walking out of. Is that, is that fair to say or, or not fair yes, to say? Yes, yes, but it's only Which is it not the way, you know, a no, lot of no, times people no, think of interior, it, exteriors. Sorry, sorry. So, no, it's okay. I'm just saying that conventional, you might shoot an interior on a soundstage and the exterior somewhere else. But for you, the inside and outside of spaces need to connect. Is that yes, fair? But, uh, yes, but the reason for that, right. I mean, uh, it, it's partly an, an aesthetic thing about the, the quality of real places. But it's also because if you're going to be in a location and arrive at the action by exploring through improvisation, you've got to have the freedom for the, the actor in character to go outside and come back in. And, you know, you've got to, in other words, the inside and the outside have got to be integrally part of the same place. It's a practical thing, really. Right. Um, I hadn't especially thought of that as an issue. As an issue, really. I mean, uh, there are quite a lot of occasions. Uh, um, I mean, there are quite a number of um, um, 
instances in my films where, for some practical reason or other, we have actually shot the interior in a different... For example, in Vera Drake, um, we didn't complete the action right. in the flat that was Vera Drake's family's flat um, for practical reasons, and we built it. Um, we've done this on a number of reasons. We've built it somewhere else right. in, in an old hospital we were, shooting, we were using um, to complete the sequence. And actually, that meant that although the idea was to build an exact replica, which we did, it nevertheless meant we could do certain things we would not have been able to do in the real location. Right. We were able to float a wall out right. and put the camera where it right. wouldn't have been able to go. Uh, so you, when those sorts of things happen, you take advantage of it. But the main thing is that it's about, about the integrity of a place and the practicalities of it being able to explore in a real place, in a real way, in real time, in order to arrive at action that has it, a real integrity. Right. And that's, I mean, I think you would say the answer to this question is yes, but for those who are wondering, this is just equally applicable to your films that take place in earlier historical periods, right? Even though... Much more difficult, it's a much yeah. more difficult thing. Okay. I mean, um, uh, you can't, uh, I mean, um, you're constrained mm. in, in lots of ways with period films. You know? I mean, first of all, I mean, you know, ideally in Vera Drake, which is set in central London in 1950, ideally you'd have seen shots of her out there in the street with the trolley buses and the, right. the trams and the things that no longer exist. Right. And, you know, um, you couldn't do it. I mean, the only way you could do it was to build it. Well, it wasn't that kind of film, no, you know, right, to say the least. Right. Um, so there are those kinds of constraints, you know. Um, well, since we're a brought-up period, I mean, you know, if I'm... Um, uh, you've been making films for almost 50 years, which is amazing. Um, and for the first 25 <laughs> of those years, right, from 71, Bleak Moments in 1971, to Secrets and Lies in 1996, um, all your films took place in the present moment, right? At the, you know, the moment of the, of the action was the same moment as the, the moment of the lives. They were the, contemporary. The right, contemporaries. That's a more straightforward way of saying that. Um, well, it's just but, that if you say they happen at the same moment, yes. it presupposes that they happen at the exact moment you're watching. Right. Them, well, that that's, that's what Dave thought his response can't actually to. achieve that. Um, but of the seven feature films you've made since then, um, five of them take place at least partly in the past. I mean, the most probably most famously, well, the one you mentioned, Topsy Turvey, Vera Drake, Mr. Turner, and Peter Liu, which just came out uh, last year. But I wanted to maybe think about, A, you could talk about uh, why might be the case that this the, you, that this changed? But maybe the people don't necessarily talk about this as a period film. But the first one of these was actually Career Girls, right? Which takes place both um, the ten years in the past and in the you know the, the, the characters go back. And that was the first film that really did that. I don't think people would call that a period film, but it was sort of well, your. Well, I mean, certainly we. Yeah. It was set in 1996 when we made it, and right. they flashed back. It's the girls were. 30 in 1996 and 20 in 1986, and it flashed back to when there were students right. 10 years earlier. So, and we had to do all the things you have to do in a period. Right. There was one scene we were shooting um, down by the seaside, and um, uh, we shot it with traffic going past. And so the entire crew stood in different strategic um, positions. And the minute anybody spotted a car about to go past that was that couldn't have been there in 19, 1986, they shouted. They had to shout "cut," <laughs> and we had, we went. It went to the. I mean, it, an extraordinary number of takes because there weren't that many old cars, cars kicking around. Right, you know, right. um, 
but your but I'm curious when you made uh, Career Girls. I mean, it wasn't that you could anticipate what your next you know six films were going to be, but that thinking about you know the past as something that was so you would wanted to film. Was that something that just sort of evolved or something that you started were, were thinking about? No, I mean, no, yeah. no, it's as straightforward as this. Yeah. I mean, my commitment was, and to some extent remains, to, to say things about our world, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, my, from the earliest, I wanted to capture the world I was in and the world that we know about and care about. Um, but then it... And they evolved as we've been talking about this way of going about things. And then it occurred to me that y you could maybe um, make a period film with the same criteria. Or well, actually, let's make a period film where you really, we really go out of our way to make it real, and not you know people behaving like they're in a period film, right. and making it look like it's a period. You know, let's say it for real. And and the first of the films, as we know, was Topsy Turvy, which, where, where I um, enthusiastically embraced the, the, the thing of taking the most unlikely subject for me to make a film about, which was the um, theatre of Gilbert and Sullivan in the 1880s. Um, and I was, apart from, apart from anything else, I was simply amused by the, the sheer um, unlikelihood of it, uh, which has its own kind of attraction. Really. Right, right. It's part, uh, but, but the, the, the thing was, I said, okay, let's look at this chocolate box world, because actually, th these were real people that did something that worked very hard, took it very seriously, um, with all that that's involved. And, it, you know, let's actually what this is, it, it, we're turning the camera around on us, and we who take slave ourselves to death and take very seriously the, the serious business of entertaining other people. And, and so there was that. It also so happens that I like Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, and so I, I just thought it would be interesting to bring that world to life. And also, um, you know, I, I was very familiar with the film called The Story of Gilbert and Sullivan that was made in, some people may remember, made by Launder and Gilliatt in 1953 with Robert Morley and Peter Finch and Morris. Somebody's nodding, now you remember that. <laughs> um, uh, uh, which was so awful. <laughs> and, you know, you had to. But I, I thought, well, it, just to, to make, to sort of, um, you know, uh, look at it as real people and stuff. Um, I just thought it would be a wheeze, really, a, a gas. Um, uh, uh, and that was it. Um, then, having done that, it, it seemed uh, less um, awesome to tackle Vera Drake, set in 1950. But separate from that, I mean, by the time you got to making Mr. Turner, which was obviously sort of around from about 1825 or something to, 18, to his death in 1851, to, um, uh, I was no longer thinking about whether it's a period film. And I mean, the point is, I was fascinated by Turner, and we thought it would be, a, and there should be a movie about him, and there hasn't been one, you know. And the same is true for about Peterloo, although obviously I felt that was an important film to make for political reasons, you know. Yeah, I have Peterloo questions coming up. Um, but know, has anyone seen Peterloo? Yeah, good, because it hasn't. Uh, 
it hasn't been around as much as one would have liked, you know. They'll all go, it's your homework to go see Peterloo afterwards. It's on Prime. Anyway, um, but given you're talking about, I want to talk to you about, we talked about actors in some ways, but I want to sort of put a little more pressure on um, the way you think about actors, work with actors. And it's interesting to think about, um, in Topsy Turvy, of course, it's, it's a world where you have stars and chorus, right? You have um, uh, uh, Mr. Temple, right, Mr. Lely, right, Mr. Grossmith, and they're going to be the stars every time, right? And you have the chorus, that's the world that they're in. In your films, of course, right, the question of actors, who the, who the prominent actor is going to be and not, um, varies a lot. And you've used this term, character actors. And I think in, sometimes in the U.S. context, character actor can seem to mean someone well, who uh, has a very specific in kind of... In Hollywood... Right. So can you talk a little bit about character Ho actors? In, yeah. yeah, in Hollywood, uh, we know that a character actor is, uh, is an old actor who plays the same part over and over again and is um, no longer young and gorgeous. Uh, um, so to speak. Now, I, that's that's one uh, right. one thing. Um, I, for me, uh, the actors I work with are character actors, which is to say that they are versatile, that they don't just play themselves. They are not motivated uh, in their act as actors by narcissism or ego. Um, they're actually people who liked and are committed to playing real people, like people out there in the street. And, you know, I've, as you know, I've worked with some actors over and over again, and they always do, we always do completely different characters. Um, and also actors who are able, and not all actors can do this, to go into character and be the character, and come out of character and be properly objective about what they experienced when they were in character. Now, that's really important if you're going to investigate by using improvisation in real time and all of that, to investigate relationships and things that are very, in a very serious and thorough way. Um, you've got to have actors who are not going to, to um, become, lose track of whether it's who they are as opposed to who the character is, and thus become vulnerable to some of the traumas that they may experience in character. This is where, um, though I have the greatest respect for the actor's studio and the method um, uh, movement, um, ultimately I have to part company from them at the very point at which I've just, which I've just mentioned, because what that is all about, what they are uh, committed to, is the kind of acting where the actor become the character becomes the actor becomes the character and the actor you know it the actor finds the experience of the character within his or her own experience and all of that and so uh, it can become very traumatic and if the actual experience that the drama demands is is traumatic it can affect the actor so it's a different it's a philosophy and it's a practical thing too philosophical and a practical thing um so, for me, it's important that the actors are character actors, which is to say they really do characters, and they do it in a, can do it um, apart from interestingly and, uh, you know, creatively. They're also um, able to take it completely seriously, which is to say n not all actors do actually take it completely seriously. And by that I mean that, you know, 
you're talking about the, a need for an actor to be able to go encounter into a situation and actually really, really explore what people are really going through. So the films that you, you see things in my films where we've really explored genuinely um, what people are going through. And it's not been approached in a kind of superficial, um, uh, surface kind of way. So I wanted to ask you about one actor in particular, which I've never done before, I don't think, but this is maybe my favorite, it's hard to choose, maybe my favorite actor in your films, someone you've worked with for over 30 years, and sort of maybe to think about this particular person, you know, either in terms of the work, um, but also with that length of experiences. So I arrived, nobody cares about this, but I'll preface it this way, I arrived in England in 1988 to study for a couple of years in Bristol, and I went to the King Square Arts Center, which I checked is no longer existing, and I walked into a film uh, called High Hopes. Uh, I never heard of Mike Lee. You could, it was hard to Google people in 1988. Um, and I saw this film called High Hopes. And, you know, Phil Davis was great. Was she was great. And it was also this actress who played Letitia Boothbrain uh, and Leslie Manville. And she played this kind of horrific sort of yuppie character. And I thought she was really good at that. And then over the years, I saw her in, you know, earlier films she'd done, Grown Ups. Um, Obviously, uh, where's my list here? Um, uh, sort of distracted social worker in Secrets and Lies, Kitty Gilbert, an amazing performance. She's not a distracted social worker. Well, that's social... my interpretation. No, but, she's okay. busy with another case, but she's not well, distracted. It's somewhat distracted. Yeah, I say that. I'm, all right. Well, a... anyway, um, Kitty Gilbert in, in Topsy Turvy, Penny in All or Nothing, Mrs. Somerville, uh, the natural philosopher, and Mr. Turner, maybe her most sort of devastating uh, performance, Mary, in, in Under the Year. And, um, and, you know, an actor who was probably less known in America, she won an Academy Award nomination for Phantom Thread last year, so maybe that became more. But I've always found her, I mean, it's true for other actors as well, but um, the amazing range of what she does, not just the kind of character she plays, but the way, she, even her physicality. And so, probably because I've always found her amazing in your films, in that range, not so much to say how great Leslie Manville is, but the question of what is it like to work with an actor like her for 30 plus years over many Well, films. she is great, and yeah. she's now doing, she's done, she's done a couple of films hit over this side of the right. Atlantic, and she's, um, I think, going to um, become even more well-known. Um, she's great to work with. Um, she, um, she, well, part of the answer to that is what I've just been talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, she is, she's got a great sense of, I mean, one of the things I should say is that I, it only works with an actor who's got a sense of humor. And there are plenty of actors <laughs> who don't have a sense of humor. And also, what I didn't say, which is also important, is it only works with actors who are intelligent. And there are loads of actors <laughs> who, are not, who are as thick as shit, basically. Um, and certainly that would... When it comes to Leslie Manville, she doesn't fit into any of those categories, really. But she's very bright. She's very, got a great sense of humor. She takes it entirely seriously. She's very, very versatile. And she throws herself into it, really. And, you know, uh, she is, incidentally, the record holder. She's worked Yes, I was, she's got eight, yeah. right, I believe. No, it's more than eight. More than eight? Okay. Well, plays, she's also done some plays. Yeah, yeah, she has, well. yeah. yeah. Um, and um, I, that's all I can say about it, really. I mean, we have a very good working relationship um, uh, and uh, uh, I mean how much do any of her previous roles inform or not inform at all absolutely not at, Nothing all. at all okay no because each time you, you, you that's the job you're doing right. right you know but I don't think uh, Van Gogh is thinking about what he painted last year when he's painting this painting now you know yeah 
not to ask him. Um, so I mean, it, it informs the work in right. that it's part of an ongoing experience. Right. But you don't think about it. We were actually talking earlier today about other kinds of collaborators. We could talk about all of them, but maybe you were interested in talking about composers and how that, obviously that's working in post-production and how that you know, informs um, your thinking about the film. I mean, do you work with composers as it's, I mean, at what point do you start working with composers? Uh, well, I, um, it's very conventional. Um, first of all, because there isn't a script. You know, what happens, well, it's conventional and it isn't. It's conventional in the sense that you can't do anything till you've made the shot of the film. However, it is the case that um, I suppose I'm not entirely right to say it's conventional in the sense that with quite a lot of films, the composer gets the script early on and starts having ideas from the script um, before and during the, the shooting uh, and before we get to post product before they get to post production. Now with my films, that simply can't happen until we've shot the film. Composer's got nothing to, to go on. So at the earliest stage of post-production, which is to say when there's what, at least what, what we'd call an assembly, which is just a very broad throwing together of the thing in its general shape, uh, the, the, the composer can then sit down and look at it. And then the work starts, really. I mean, I really uh, uh, have been blessed with very terrific composers, and I, but I I'm only, can only work with composers uh, who, apart from anything else, start from their own emotional response to the film. Um, it's not the kind of work, I would suggest that mine kind of work isn't the kind of stuff that would work for the kind of composer, and there are very brilliant ones in this category whose job is to know how to supply um, uh, film music that's in the genre of different genres of film music. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, I mean, for example, w with one minor exception, I've only ever worked with composers who use live instruments mm -hmm. as opposed to electronic instruments. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the composer really has to look at the film and find her or his emotional response to it. And then we just talk, talk about possibilities, talk about possible sounds, possible instruments. Uh, if we start to talk about a particular instrument, we'll get somebody, get a musician in. First of all, jot down a few sketches and just to hear what it sounds like. Yeah. And um, we just sort of talk it into existence. I think what is important, and again, this differs from some kinds of, certainly some kind of Hollywood films and so on, is that the only people making the decisions are me and the composer. I'll go backwards and forwards to his or her place and um, we will gradually arrive at it. And it's not only about the nature and the spirit of the music, but also what they call spotting the music, deciding where it comes in and where it goes out. And that may change. Then when we reach a certain stage, um, the editor will come and have a look, and the producer too, just to see what's what. But um, really, it's down to uh, you know. And actually, um, I mean, these days, I've, the last few films have been composed by a guy called Gary Yershon, who uses a sophisticated um, uh, computer program uh, called Sibelius, which um, this doesn't mean that all his mu music sounds like <laughs> Sibelius. Um, 
so that he can it simulates different instruments and things. It's mm -hmm. useful. Um, but for me, and this is probably outside the what we're primarily talking about, for me, the one of the best moments in the whole of filmmaking is the day or a couple of days when we record the music. Because you go to the studio and um, musicians show up. And we always get, because they're live instruments, we always get very good people, mostly classical um, types of uh, instrumentalists. But they're all from the big orchestras and things that come and do these gigs. And um, they show up. They, they only received the score yesterday. And they pick up their instruments and, you know, play it as though they've known it all their lives, you know. And I'm the guy who has to work for six months with an actor before we <laughs> shoot anything. You know. um, and it's very exciting. For it. And then, of course, they, they then all pile into the, after each um, uh, um, take, or each, certainly each number, they pile into the um, control room and for the playback, and they want to know what it is and how mm. they've contributed and things. And of course, when you see that, at that moment when you hear the music, the real music, not the, the computer version of it, but mm. the actual live thing mm. with the picture, it's when you sort of feel it's really finally getting, mm. moving towards the thing. So it's very exciting. Mm. Um, so I do want to ask you about two media that you also work in other than Cinema, other related, um, and, and, and Dave uh, gestured for these. One is theater, which of course you worked in before you were working in film, starting in the 60s, and you still continue to work on it. Uh, you did a couple of plays for the National Theater, 2000 Years, and, and Grief, and you directed a production of Pirates of Penzance, as we talked about earlier. And I'm wondering, I mean, do, are these for you, I mean, I was thinking of other you know, famous filmmakers, Igmar Bergman most prominently, possibly also Mike Nichols, right, whose whole entire careers moved back and forth between theater and film, and I'm wondering for you, are those just sort of two different parts of your brain, or how much does moving back and forth between those two inform each other or not? I don't know how much it informs. I really right. couldn't say, really. I'm not sure whether it does particularly. Um, I mean, I, my greater love is filmmaking, um, but, you know, I've got roots in theater, and I, you know, um, well, I, I either love theater or I hate theater, depending <laughs> on what it is, you know. Um, uh, um, uh, and it's great to do a, a play not every so often. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the production I did of the Pirates of Penzance lies outside of the discussion, really. That was a kind of uh, an aside, and I don't think it's worth discussing, really. <laughs> I mean, it was a good experience, and everyone liked it, but I don't think it's relevant to what we're talking about. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, the thing is, it's so hard to get a film up and running. And it's so um, important to keep the battle going, to get films made and to get them out there, that I sort of, um, I, I mean, it's, it's much, much easier to make a play yeah. and to get to do that. And, and um, I, I'm less uh, motivated to, to have to do it, really. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, it, it's great when it happens, you know. Right. I, as to how one feeds off the other, I can't really... Yeah. Um, I don't know whether it does particularly. I mean, you know, um, what are the differences? Um, there are obviously there are the differences that there are the differences that are simply the differences between the two media. Um, when I construct a play, when I construct a film, however much we've 
um, got a really strong foundation, such as we've been talking about, in the end, you still do f shoot a film in bits. And, you know, uh, the actor, the, the, there's no, the actor has to have some kind of proper sense of the emotional journey of the character within the narrative of the film. But there's no, um, the actor has no responsibility for the st structure of the, that doesn't have to find his or her way through the structure of the, uh, of the film. But with a play, when I construct a play, I have to remember that the, these actors are going to do it every night for a long stretch of time, and find their way from A to Z at every performance, uh, and live their lives in the day and come back. And, you know, and that's a whole different... So that's got to be built into the conception of the piece. And you've got to be able to bear that in mind, both in a in a practical and technical way, you know. Um, uh, I, I, and you've got to have, I mean, there are things that I can have happen in the film, like people going berserk and stuff, which you can do on the stage, but there's the difference is that you can shoot stuff on a film and capture moments. Mm. But on the play, again, you've got to, it's got to be constructed so that it, it really reliably can happen the same or, mm. you know, a version of the same from at every single performance. Uh, uh, and so those things are, but those are technical differences in, in a way. Well, and the other medium is, I mean, that's really interesting, that is, um, that is obviously technically closer to film as television. And people may not know that between 73 and 85, right, everything you made was for BBC, so for Meantime, made for Channel 4. So you worked in television partly for the reasons you mentioned, the difficulty of the British film industry in those times. And so it's, you've talked at some points about how those films are exactly like the other films, the films you made afterwards in some ways, are they not like them for lots of different reasons? Well, I mean, yeah. the bottom line is simple, that, that, that um, we all made films for television in that period because we right. couldn't make features. Right. Right. It was impossible to make an indigenous British uh, feature, serious feature film. Right. Um, and we were lucky enough, a lot of us, Ken Loach and Stephen Frears and all of us, our generation, right. we were lucky that the BBC particularly, right. was a very liberal place where you could go, and we made films. Um, and actually, I'm not sure what you just said, but I, I don't really make any, they were films. Well, I think uh, you they said, in terms of technically, and, and well, they weren't, yeah, they, in front of an audience. Well, they, they weren't yeah. made to motion picture standards because right, right. they were shot on 16 millimeter and, you know, but, but so in other words, there are things that we, that, that you spend more time and go to greater lengths and, you know, uh, 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 in a more sophisticated way for, right. for, for motion pictures, especially now. But 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 um, uh, uh, there were films, right. and all of them at some time or other have been I've seen screened with audiences, and they work as movies. Right. You know, um, uh, the exception uh, uh, um, to the, those pieces of work that I made for television which weren't actually films, but were made in the old-fashioned uh, five-camera television studio, right. were the televised version of my stage play, Abigail's right. Party, right. which people sometimes think is a film, but it isn't. It's <laughs> very much that. Yeah. Um, and a couple of short things I did in the studio. Right. But that was a horrible medium, right. because it was a compromised medium, because every time, you know, with five cameras all going on at once, right. you know, each camera, you were mainly concerned with that no, no, none of the cameras could see the other cameras, you know, and right, that right, sort of consideration. Right. And it was kind of mechanical, really. Right. But um, 
otherwise, they were all films. And really, to be honest, I haven't much to say about the experience of working in television, per se. Well, there goes my next question, which was, um, I was going to ask you, is now, I mean, it's one of, one of these cliches about our current moment. A lot of directors who are now working in television and so forth, television is kind of a hot medium. I'm curious whether that you have any interest or appeal that appealed to you in any way, shape, or form now that television may or may not be different from what television was in the 70s well, and 80s. It's different. Um, yeah. Look, you know, um, there's a number of things about that. First of all, I, I, like a number of, a lot of filmmakers, I mean, I am committed, I still, uh, here we are, and, you know, I actually think I want to see m movie houses and people watching films in a concentrated way on the big screen, communally, and with all the the uh, quality that we can bring to that and the experience of that. And I'm committed to that, so there's that. Um, I mean, obviously, people watch are now, because of, well, we know why, people are able to watch television in a different way now. And it's great that there is access to stuff. Um, uh, I mean, a running gag we had when we were shooting the big massacre scene in Peterloo is that we, we say, you know, some people are going to watch this on their iPhones, you know? um, which is ridiculous, really. <laughs> um, as to my own, apart from that, yeah. um, the t television, I mean, um, people have said to me, well, why don't you do a series? You know, you could do a, build a series. <laughs> and my producer, who Georgina Lowe, who has experience of television series, in fact, um, she said, well, she worked it out. There are two things about it, really. One is that what you get by way of the money, money to make a series, when you work out the, 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 the maths, the sums, what you get per minute on the screen, even with a big television budget, for a thing which has got 8, 10, 12 episodes, whatever it is, per minute... I, you know, pound for pound, it's less than a low-budget feature film. It spreads. The other thing, which is, you know, I, I make a film and I spend months creating the premise, then we shoot the film. Okay, so you do that, and then you've got episode one. Yeah. <laughs> when do you, when you've got, while you're doing that, how do you prepare episode two? And it falls over itself and so on. Um, and I can think of a million excuses as to why I don't deserve it, but I'll just leave it at that for the moment because everyone's getting bored with this stuff. Well, I'll ask one more question, then we'll turn it over to everyone else. Um, you mentioned Peterloo, um, obviously. I mean, all your films, in some ways, I mean, more, some more obviously than others, have some sort of political dimension, whether that's, you know, capital P with, with kings and queens or, or, or just the, the politics of everyday life. Um, I'm, this may be a question you don't want to answer, um, given the challenges of being uh, in Britain at the moment, but I'm curious what your, what is it like to be a British filmmaker in 2019? Well, I mean, uh, um, the primary question is what is it like being a British citizen <laughs> in the, uh, at, the, at this precise point in time? Uh, you know, what's it like being an American citizen at this precise point in time? I mean, it's not good news, whichever way you look at it. Um, uh, uh, um, what I think may be interesting is that we decided to make this film about the uh, pro-democracy demonstration that was attacked by the authorities in uh, 1819, um, so-called Peterloo Massacre, 
because um, uh, uh, um, they wanted the people wanted the vote. Only two percent of the population had the vote. We decided to make the film at the beginning of 2014, and just as soon as we started to prepare it and to research it, we found ourselves saying almost on a daily basis, "You know what? This is becoming somehow increasingly relevant." What we couldn't have anticipated and didn't know at the beginning of 2014 is that in the half decade to follow, that the world would go mad, <laughs> and that, um, or infinitely madder than it had previously been. Um, so issues of democracy, of course, are a greater and ever-increasing worry um, everywhere, not least here. And um, so, in some way, there was something prescient about it. And, um, you know, uh, the film's taken on a greater resonance than we could possibly have anticipated, is all I can say, really. So, it became a Brexit film without being well, planned I that mean, way. Well, I mean, not literally about no. Brexit, but it's no. the issues are what, you know. If you like. Yeah. Sure. It is a Brexit film, officially. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I will turn it to 8 o'clock, so I will turn things over to whatever questions you may have, which are probably plentiful. I don't know, do we have a mic or just people be loud, I guess? Um, you can call them, I'll let you be the caller. No, no, you do. Oh, okay, that's a lot of responsibility. I think I saw your hand first. Yeah, go ahead. I wonder how the transition to the... I wish there was a microphone, I can't hear. Is there a mic we can, you can take... No, is there another microphone? Just be loud. Oh, why? How, why did I? How did I? I like the way you put it. How? How did I become interested in the female psychology? <laughs> well, let's put it. My influences. Well, <laughs> uh, well, the, um, I, I've grown up in a world that is populated by men and women, <laughs> and. I'm concerned to make films about people. And I, you know, the, the role of men and women, or if you want to put it uh, in a way that's more sympathetic to the spirit of your question, the role of women and men, um, it is uh, the relationship and all of the rest of it is very important. And so um, I can't really answer the question about the psychology, what, what did you call it? The, yeah, I mean, I'm concerned with people and, you know, uh, and women are, you know, there to be explored. I mean, you know, that's really the answer to your question, frankly. I mean, of course, to talk about it on a different, completely different level, um, you can only be aware if you've seen as many films as you would expect I've seen and know about. Uh, that the women's role, the, the roles of women in films are very often uh, absent or subservient or secondary or, and all of those things. And so, you know, I have a conscious um, commitment and um, uh, objective to create roles that really... And I don't just mean roles for actresses, although that's important too, but 
you know, stories that are, that do focus on, on, on women, uh, you know. But uh, I can't say any more about it than that, really. It is about the texture of um, people and our lives, really. I mean, there have been women in my life, of course, <laughs> starting with my mother, <laughs> about which there's nothing answer. more to be said. <laughs> I was curious. Uh, a woman. Yes, it's happening. A woman. I, I am a woman. Um, I was curious to know a little bit more about your preparation process, the period of work that you do before you start working with the actors. Um, how much of a narrative framework do you have hashed out, whether that's, say, a, a chronology or characters? And then at what point do you start to bring in the production elements, say, locations? Start to what? Cost? Production elements like locations or costumes. Oh, yeah. Um, on the whole, um, there's absolutely no structure at all um, at the beginning. But of course, it, having said that, there are different kinds of um, different kinds of structure, different kinds of ways of having structure. There, there's always a film in my head. And that doesn't mean a film with a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's a, a concept, or a feeling, or a spirit. Sometimes things are more concrete than others. I mean, you've been talking about um, my film, Secrets and Lies. Well, I knew that that was going to be a film about adoption. We've mentioned my film, Vera Drake, which we, I knew was going to be a film about an illegal abortionist before the... 1967 Abortion Act, because I am old enough to remember what it was like when people had unwanted pregnancies and those kind of women were around and so on. Um, but in, the, in many cases, I mean, I've had a sort of sense or spirit of things. I mean, I, if you're familiar with my film, Happy Go Lucky, um, I had a sense of a, an atmosphere and a spirit, because I knew I was going to put the actress Sally Hawkins at the center of it, who I'd worked with previously. And I knew that we could, in some way, create a character that would tap into her own energy. Um, but I didn't really know what it was. Uh, uh, it evolved. Uh, and so uh, you can have a sort of sense of, I mean, I, I, if I was to put on paper something that's going around, floating around in my head, uh, you might put uh, uh, the idea of X, arrow, Y, brackets, arrow, Z. But it's, that's not, a, that, that's not a, uh, what you're talking about. It's a sense of something. The thing is to be able to, again, uh, it's not news for, in other media, to discover what the work is by, you know, you put a mark on the canvas and that mark sends you a message and you then, that develops to something else and it, there's a two-way communication between you and the action. So um, that's dealing with your part of your question, which is to do with uh, what's written, things written down. And there is no structure, and it evolves. And you arrive at the structure by the process of investigation and rehearsal. During the course of the development of the thing, to answer the other part of your question, during the course of the development of the thing, um, production designer, costume designer and the makeup designer, and also the cinematographer. But first of all, just the, those first three uh, start to tune into what's happening, 
tune into the world that is emerging, the world that we're creating. Start to talk with me and with the actors and start to understand the character. So that, and then I start my conversation with the production designer and then share with, the, with them and with the cinematographer my, some c conception of how it, of the spirit of the thing, how it feels, how it might look, you know. And then we'll reach a point where it, I mean, the, the, um, that informs decisions that are then made, both first of all preliminary ones and then gradually more specific ones about the production design. The costume design is very important. The, you know, it is standard for actors on movies to show up on the day of the shoot and be, so here's your costume. And the actor, and it may not even feel comfortable, let alone whether it's the actress, what the actor expected. Are you an actress? I used to act, yeah. Yeah, yeah I could tell by the way you're reacting to my... <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I can smell an actor. <laughs> um, so so actors, you know, very often... But here in my films, that you know, there's been real collaboration and they've really, you know... The, and also I get people to rehearse in costumes from the earliest stage, even temporary costumes, and gradually they're replaced by the real ones. So that they, not only are they comfortable in them, but they actually are really, they've, been, they've collaborated in what they're wearing without in any way robbing the, production, the, the costume designer of her um, job and uh, artistic uh, responsibility. And the same is true of... Um, Obviously, the production design. If you if, if it's somewhere where somebody lives, then they really have been in. This work's gone into decisions that are based on knowing about the characters and their, their background and their taste and all the rest of it. Um, and then you, all of that. The, the, also, the makeup designer will be very much part of that because it, it, that's important to it in the long in the longer run. Then it's sharing it with the cinematographer and. Um, you know, in the case of one film, Naked, for example, I was able to say, this is somehow, this is going to be a rather a, a dark film. It's a nocturnal. This guy's on a solo journey. That, you know, I, I shared those things. And so then we all shoot tests to, to get the look of the film, and that informs that. And we, you know, If you saw my film, um, which you've referred to, Another Year, which was made a few years ago, about 10 years ago. Um, it happens, it's divided into spring, summer, autumn, and winter. Now, the, the story was developing um, with the various characters and things, and it was coming along fine. And then I, I talked to the Dick Pope, who has shot all my films since 1990. And I said, um, Talked about, it, talked about it, and I'm a bit vague, actually, the way I talked about it. And he said, well, okay, I'll, I'll shoot some tests. Um, so we piled into a preview theatre at 8 o'clock in the morning, uh, and he said, look, look, the, uh, I'm going to show you four different versions of a look, uh, and you have to decide which, one, which way you want to go. So I looked at it, and I sat there, and suddenly I had this incredible sartre, this incredible revelation, because I suddenly thought, I know what this is. This is spring, summer, autumn, and winter. And what he's, without knowing it, what he's shot are the looks of spring, summer, autumn, winter, more or less. 
So he, uh, the test ended, and it lasted a few minutes. And he said, okay, well, what, what, which way do you want? I said, we'll go all ways. We're going to shoot. <laughs> What are you talking about? You're mad. I said, no, no, it'll be spring, summer, autumn. Now, here's the interesting thing. That's what he did, and it was fantastic. And you'd see it, and there's a completely different look in each of the... Because that informed the design and everything else. But the interesting thing I would, you might find is that I then went back into the work with the actors. And, of course, having made that decision, that informed dramatically what stuff I was doing, you know. So that sort of partly answers your question, I think, you know. Yeah. Which? There's a microphone coming your way. Um, you talked about you talked about uh, filmmaking constraints uh, when you make the period stories. Um, I'm wondering if you face similar constraints when you're telling a story that has been that is already established, such as Peter Lou or Topsy Turvy, dealing with real life characters and how you approach that, well, as opposed the, to fiction. The, the, they're not constraints. It's simply a different ball game, that's all. I mean, they are... I mean, that's the job. The jo you say, look, here's the thing. It doesn't matter whether you're completely inventing the world that's in the film, or whether you are dramatising, which is what you're talking about, things that actually happened. You can read all the books in the world, but it doesn't make it happen in front of the camera. You've still got to breathe life into these characters and make things happen in the moment. Topsy-turvy. Um, there's a scene in Topsy-turvy, which, if you haven't seen it, it's about the original production of the Mikado. And there's a scene where the, the author, Gilbert, has the dress rehearsal of the show has cut what in fact became a famous song about the punishment fitting the crime sung by the Mikado himself of Japan. And um, the, the chorus in the film go in a posse to Gilbert and confront him and, in, and persuade him to restore the song because they think it's a great song. Now that actually happened and every book you will read about the, these events will tell you that's what happened. Without exception. But nobody tells you how it happened, or who said what, or where they were standing, or what happened in the moment. They just tell you that that's what happened. And the same is true of all sorts of events that we've put into these various film, period films with, of a historical background. Because you've still got to do just what we do when we're making him up, inventing fictitious period, modern things. Sorry, I am hearing voice. Um, uh, which is to make it happen in the moment, in three dimensions, in front of the camera. So it's not a constraint, it's a stimulus. Because that's the job. The job is to draw from it and then find a way of bringing it to life, basically. I mean, with Peter Lou, I mean, we, it's very exciting. I mean, you know, um, if you see Peter Lou, you know, you've got these terrible magistrates who dole out most horrendous punishments and are very much, in, very who are very largely responsible for it all going wrong and people being um, 
killed on the day in 1819. Um, and what you see in the film is that some of them write letters, which they did every day, to the Home Office in London about what was going on. We were able to go to the National Archive in Kew, in London, with all the actors playing magistrates, where it, our researcher had arranged with the guys there to put out all this stuff on tables. And the ones that were playing magistrates who actually existed were able to read let the letters that their characters had written 200 years earlier to the Home Office, which is still in the, archi in the National Archives. Now, that's not a constraint. That's just very exciting. Now, that doesn't mean that we, everything that's in the film is a, you know, we, we drew from, when you see the film, that we, you, you um, are listening some of the time to stuff that people actually said or wrote. Um, and we've, but we've distilled it. I mean, we've, we've um, it's not lifted into the film without any editing. It's been integrated into the characterizations and the, and the moment, you know. So it's a stimulus, not a constraint, if you see what I mean. It's a constraint if you say, well, I, sh couldn't I have made a film about Peterloo where nobody was attacked and they all went home and <laughs> had tea and they all got the vote the following day? I mean, that's from that point of view, yeah, it's a constraint. But, you know, I think that would be uh, that's an eccentric um, way of looking at it. Really. Do you want to use the microphone? The people at the back can't hear you. Okay. Timothy Spall, who's one of your regulars, uh, always plays these delightfully different you know, kinds of people. I sort of imagine that he himself uh, might be a little unusual, interesting. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about him uh, as an individual and someone to work with. Um, uh, He's quite unusual. <laughs> um, uh, I don't, there's not a lot I can say about him, really. I mean, he is a character actor. He is eccentric. Uh, he has done some really interesting work, both with me and elsewhere. Um, and I, this kind of thing I was saying about Leslie Manville before is what I would say about him, too. I can't really say anything more about him uh, really, than just to say that, really. I'm sorry, I, it's probably a disappointing answer, but I'm not going to say any more about it, actually. Hi, I just had a, I had a question about happy-go-lucky, which you already referred to a little bit. Um, and just to preface it by gushing for a second, that I love you that... hold the microphone near your mouth? Okay, I, I really love the film Happy-Go-Lucky. Um, and what I love about that film besides the fact that it's set in Finsbury Park um, is, which I love, is the way in which it creates a character um, who sort of has this genuine expression of happiness, but it's not condescended to. And it has this way of then reflecting on um, systemic problems in the world rather than sort of just sort of individual problems. It kind of reminds me of, um, like what the Dardenne brothers do and that people are genuinely good and so they can then sort of take a look at what's wrong with the world around them. And you could contrast it with like like what Noah Baumbach did in Francis Ha where it's like you have this flighty, happy person, um, but like they show her parents and her parents are really like good and sort of perfect. Whereas if you see Sally Hawkins' character in Happy Go Lucky, she encounters 
a lot of really dark things, and where she comes from is really trouble, but um, um, I just thought that was a really, it's, it's just a really sort of beautiful choice of the way, you know, all the different things that she encounters that kind of reflect on her encounter with the world, and obviously um, the, the driving instructor, um, whose politics I think are still very relevant. Yeah. So I just wanted to ask um, a little bit more about where you started from, and what were the, some of the surprising things that came out of the process along the way that you didn't expect the movie to go? Well, just repeating what I've kind of been talking about, I mean, in, in a way, it was all surprising because it, we didn't know where it would take us. Um, it, it was quite a dangerous thing to embark on. What could have been a relentlessly cheerful person And there are people who have seen that film who said, God, by the end, I wanted to kill her. You see, and I, my serious reaction to that is they either went to sleep during the film or they've really got a problem that prevents them from seeing what's there. Because it's understandable to have that feeling about her in the first few minutes of the film because she goes into this sh shop and she behaves in a very eccentrically um, exuberant way. But before you get, before too long, you start to see that she's an entirely serious, very responsible person. She's a very good teacher. She's a very, you know, um, patient. She knows how to deal with stuff. Um, she's focused and grounded, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, as much as any film I've made, it really was uh, an adventure to see what happened when he put these, you know, I, I got, we got this guy, this uh, kind of fascist, with these terrible reaction reviews as a driving instructor, a guy with not very bright, with full of ideas, things he'd read, and no sense of humor, played by Eddie Marsan, who is brilliant at it. And... Um, I just had the notion of setting up driving lessons. And in this particular case, the only way to investigate the driving lessons through improvisations was we couldn't, they couldn't do it in a, in a the kind of hall that we would be rehearsing in. We had, to, we had a driving uh, dual control car with a, a driving uh, logo on top of it and things, driving, um, driving school logo. And we did all these long, long improvisations of, of driving lessons, which where they were in character, and I would be sitting, lying on the back. Um, very painful experience for me, because, partly because it was a Ford Fiesta. <laughs> with, um, and there were lots of traffic bumps in the road. And, and it's got terrible suspension. So that, there was that. And partly just trying to contain myself, not laughing out loud at some of the things that were going on. But... We did loads and loads of those uh, to investigate the relationships, and then we built the scenes um, developing from those, you know, including going right up to the climax. See, and um, th that's really all I can, you know, uh, s s say ab about that, really. And, uh, but I'm glad you raised the subject of Happy Go Lucky because I'm very fond of it, certainly. Two more questions. Okay.
Thank you. Um, I'm very curious about your communication with your actors when working on their performances. Uh, do you have principles, methods, techniques for what you actually say to them, how you speak them to, to elicit the best work? Um, well, first of all, um, I mean, the short answer to your question, uh, before I say anything else, is that it's about being really straightforward and not playing tricks and um, talking about it openly and without, you know, in, a, in a, an honest way and all of that. And I say that because I know that there are, there's a kind of directing which is about sort of um, talking funny languages and playing tricks and stuff. There's a, there are strict disciplines involved. Um, first of all, you know, I've talked about using improvisation to explore situations and things. Now, anybody here, possibly including you, I don't know, who has had any experience of acting and acting workshops and improvisation, or you know, we will know that um, it's a characteristic of a lot of such work that the actor is expected to be inventive, interesting, uh, um, to show things, to, you know, to move the thing along, to, 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 be, to have interesting creative ideas that will make it richer and more interesting and amusing or whatever it is. And I am very, very clear with the actors and they get it and they follow this very strictly, that they, I say to the actors, your job is not to be interesting. It's not to be inventive. It's not to, um, you know, we're not asking you to come up with interesting material or to be a writer. You've got to be in character and just do or say, react, do what the character would do. Let the character do the work. Now, that's a strict discipline. Um, and actors that get it and can do it and do it brilliantly. Then the discipline is, when they're in character, they're in character. I talked about this earlier when I was talking about, as opposed to the method thing. When they're not in character, they come out of character, so they can be useful and objective about it. And also, it's not healthy to go home and be the character all night and all that stuff. <laughs> now, people think it is, but it's not. It's counterproductive. Um, so that's important. And another thing, which I think may relate to the nature or spirit of your question, is that I never, when an improvisation is happening, I don't say anything. I don't, I don't throw in instructions or, you know, there's a book called, Improvi an American book called Improvisation for the Theatre by Viola Spolin. Anyone ever read it or have it? Yes, one, two copies of it there. Yeah. Uh, burn it. <laughs> and on the whole, I don't advocate the burning of books. But she, she talks about coaching and, um, you know, improvisation going on. And you stand on the, the director throws in, you know, it's, you know, it, it's, it doesn't make any sense, really. I, I don't think. Not, in, not if you're talking about it, exploring life in a real way. Um, 
And another thing that's important is that when we talk about doing actors in character, doing improvisations, it's always, always in real time. An hour is an hour. Four hours is four hours. And we have got famous improvisations that have happened lasting 11, 12, 13 hours when we were really, things really were explored, in order, which then gave us the raw material, including the famous climaxes of Secrets and Lies and Vera Drake and things. But as to a language, a lingua franca of just communicating with the actors, it's about really just talking about things in a very clear, honest, and open, and unpretentious, and unaffected, and unarty, and bullshit-free, uh, untheatrical, <laughs> uncamp, <laughs> uh, healthy <laughs> way. Phew, don't ask me to repeat that. <laughs> Last question. I think we have one over there, it looks like. Sure. Your actors' your jobs are simply to be in character as the material is, is, uh, is being developed. But where, how are the characters formed? Uh, aren't they different characters several months into the process? Or how much do you define, this is who you are, but even then developing the material, well, we, we... they must become different people. Well, I first of all, I, um, I work individually with each actor. And that, when actors take part in these films, when I ask an actor to take part, I say, please be in the film. Um, I can't tell you what it's about, because we don't, we'll discover that. I can't tell you what the character is, is going to be, because you and I are going to collaborate to create that character. And incidentally, I always say, that, and the exception being the period films where we know that we're dramatizing a particular set of events, but in the ones that we're talking about mostly, um, I say, and you will never know anything about the film except what your character knows, which makes it possible to explore situations in a really truthful way. I work individually with each actor to start with, literally, and it's just uh, me and that actor and nobody else at all in the room for lo quite long sessions, quite often. And the first thing that I do is to ask the actor to make a list, make lists, um, talk about real people that they actually know in real life. And I, I will we'll talk about these people at quite some length, and I'll gradually eliminate people, and gradually, and eventually I'll whittle it down, and I'll say, well, Let's take this person and that person and put them together, and that's the basis of the character. Um, or we'll just pick one, or, how, or whatever it is. So I've, we've already started to make choices, this is answering your question, as to the nature of the character. Then the actor you know, starts to get up and move around and be the person. I'm actually getting the actor to do what artists do, which is to draw from real life. So then we've got the beginning, the beginning of a character on the go. Then we might sort of start to add conditions or add characteristics or change things. Um, and that's a, part, a whole process that, of communication, again, this is answering your question, that goes on, which, which is just about a, a work that I do just with the actor. Then the actor, then the characters, that we start putting them together in a way that Sean's re referred to. And start to explore situation and build the whole build world. And to some degree, what happens, it being in the nature of humanity to do so, is that 
the characters start to grow and develop because of the way they're affected by other characters to some, to some extent. And we might introduce other factors, I mean, which alters the way they are or the way they talk or whatever. You know. So it's a long and complex process. Um, and I'm sort of really have described how it works in principle. I think that answers your question. All right, thank you very much. Thank you, Mike, for being here. Thank you. That was Ohio State's Sean O'Sullivan in conversation with Mike Lee in the Wex's Film Video Theater. As an added treat, Lee spent a chunk of the ensuing weekend at the Wex as an audience member for our annual documentary fest, Unorthodox. You can see a pic of him with the weekend's other visiting filmmakers in the film video highlights on our Instagram feed at WexArts. I'm Melissa Starker for the Wexner Center for the Arts. For more information on Wex programming and who you might run into here, go to wexarts.org. Thanks for listening.